0: So if you think about like the 20, the foundations of 21st century technology, data is a fuel, it's a, it's a massive asset. And so, uh, they are beginning to implement laws that restrict the flow of data, uh, in, you know, within the country and externally, uh, we're seeing the buildup of massive data centers, uh, all over China to store that information.
1: On this episode of the defense scoop podcast reimagining how data and AI can supercharge national security missions, and how an emerging player in the defense tech space is fighting to protect the nation's IP from falling into the wrong hands. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Welcome to the Defense Scoop Podcast, where you'll hear all about what's going on across the defense technology landscape. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO, on Tuesday unveiled the latest iteration of an online system developed to engage with current and former government employees, military service members, and contractors who wish to contribute to the records they're generating about unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP, that might threaten U.S. national security This new mechanism is separate from an existing reporting channel that currently serving military personnel should continue to use to provide information about the latest contemporary encounters they have on the job with UAP, which is the modern term for UFOs, according to AARO Director Sean Kirkpatrick. Both long-anticipated options are now accessible on the Defense Department's recently launched AARO.mil website. Kirkpatrick told Defense Scoop Tuesday that the new reporting mechanism is for people who think that they have firsthand knowledge of clandestine programs that the government has been hiding. President Biden signed an executive order on artificial intelligence this week with wide ranging requirements and implications, including for the Department of Defense. Among other things, it would require the DOD and Department of Homeland Security together to conduct a pilot aimed at finding ways to use AI to protect national security networks, requiring its launch within the next 180 days. Then, within the next 270 days, the secretaries of the two departments must each deliver a report to the White House on the results of actions taken pursuant to the plans and operational pilot projects including a description of any vulnerabilities found and fixed through the development and deployment of ai capabilities and any lessons learned on how to identify develop test evaluate and deploy ai capabilities for cyber defense according to the eo additionally the eo requires in the next six months that the pentagon chief must also deliver a report about ways to fix gaps in AI talent related to national defense. You can read more about these stories and much more at DefenseScoop.com. In this next segment, I'll send it over to my colleague, Brandy Vincent, who's joined by Greg Levesque, CEO and co-founder of Strider Technologies, a firm dedicated to revolutionizing the way companies, universities, research institutions, and government agencies protect their innovation and compete in a new era of global strategic competition. I'll turn it over to Brandy for that conversation.
2: Hi, this is Defense Scoop's Pentagon correspondent, Brandy Vincent. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm here today with Greg Levesque, an expert in economic statecraft and the CEO and co founder of Strider. Launched in 2019, Strider uses emerging tech and strategic intelligence capabilities to help its partners pinpoint and respond to state sponsored IP theft and supply chain vulnerabilities. Thanks for joining us today, Greg.
0: Great to be with you, Brandy.
2: So I think we should just go ahead and dive into our conversation. Um, To kick us off, for those who have never worked with or maybe heard of Strider, how do you explain your mission and focus? And tell us a little bit about the work that you guys do specifically with government and military partners.
0: Yeah, so Strider was founded in in 2019, um, really with a clear-cut Uh, mission to protect the ideals and innovations of the free world as we define it. Um, And so what we're doing is we're combining uh, a really unique opportunity in the open source domain uh, with a rapid increase in open source data available online and generative AI to uh, reimagine the way that data and software can interact to provide a whole suite of uh, solutions to corporate and government stakeholders. So much of our work, as you noted, uh, is focused on protecting companies from state-sponsored IP theft, uh, supply chain risk, uh, and talent recruitment. Uh, but a good component of what we built uh, today is also supporting uh, government stakeholders in better understanding technology ecosystems and where there might be opportunities for them to engage with an industry uh, to develop new capabilities. So that's uh, kind of how we're engaged right now with with government and military partners to really help illuminate uh, what is going on within industry from a nation state perspective.
2: That's awesome. And talk to me a little bit more about um, this use of generative AI. Of all the sort of different meanings and capabilities that AI has, generative is very much emerging. So what is your use um, or Strider's use of that really look like right now?
0: So our, our general view is you know, generative AI is gonna become a commodity. Right, And and I think it already is trending in that direction. The real unique capability here is gonna be the data that feeds those tools and that technology. And so that's that's where we're investing uh, across our business is to uh, really quickly put together unique data assets that can turbocharge generative AI platforms, uh, both for corporate use cases and then also governmental use cases as well. Uh, So I think we're in a really unique uh, point in time here uh, to better uh, access data through generative AI solutions. And I'll give you an example. Some of the core issues that we've seen across the industry is uh, folks don't necessarily have a, a a lack of data. They have a lack of context or linguistic ability to engage with that data. So we've already run through a number of um, use cases here internally at Strider where we've leveraged generative AI to, to really remove those barriers, so to speak. Uh, and I mean, imagine being able to ask a database Brandy, that's entirely in, in a foreign language, Russian, Farsi, et cetera, um, ask it a, a question in English, get a response in English cited to the source. I mean, that's the kind of speed that we're looking at, removing those barriers uh, so that folks can better engage with that information and make it actionable.
2: That is fascinating. And then one more on that. What are the mechanisms um, or the sources of all this different data that you're pulling to help inform your clients? So
0: it's it's far reaching. I mean, our uh, collection platform right now spans 40,000 sources globally. Um, it's everything from a website to unindexed databases that nation states are using to target scientists. Um, so it's, it spans the gamut. And uh, it also includes supply chain and corporate registry data. Um, but that, that system is collecting and processing information 24-7, 365. We're adding roughly 12 to 15 million new data objects every single day.
2: Wow. Let's dive a little. I love when you uh, provided sort of that tangible kind of help me picture it, help me visualize it example with um, the languages and Um, generative AI, but let's dive a little further. I know one of Strider's recent projects um, was a deep dive into how the Chinese government recruited Los Alamos National Lab scientists, um, which is based in the U.S., the U.S. National Lab, for advanced military programs. Talk to us a little bit about that work. What did it involve? How did y'all complete it? How are you using these emerging technologies in it? And what were sort of the big takeaways?
0: So this this is a report that we rolled out um, called the Los Alamos Club. And in essence, it, it all started with, um, I mean, a couple, a couple of years ago, actually, I was reading an article in the South China Morning Post, and it was about how so many Chinese scientists uh, that had previously worked out Los Alamos had returned to China and were working on military programs that they jokingly referred to themselves as, lo- as the Los Alamos Club. And I remember reading it, just wondering to myself, like, I wonder who's part of this how big it really is. And so as we were uh, talking internally here at Strider about our research priorities for the, for the year, um, I kind of threw that in and I said, what if we were able to actually map out the club? Who was part of it, what they were working on? And so that was the genesis for, for the report. Um, I mean, I'll admit it, like I did not expect it to be um, as egregious as, as what we actually uncovered. Uh, I thought we were talking maybe like a dozen people uh, what we actually pulled out were 162 individuals over about a 20-year period who had had some stint or another at Los Alamos, some of them working there for, you know, over a decade and or longer uh, with Q-level clearances, for example. Um, but in essence, you know, when you boil that down, what we really unmapped was a decade-long intelligence operation to not only place scientists at Los Alamos to train them, to provide them access to information and know-how, and then recruit them back to China, uh, but a full-fledged effort to then plug those individuals into domestic Chinese military uh, R&D programs. So I think the three main ones that we flagged in the report were hypersonics. Uh, The former deputy director of nonlinear studies at Los Alamos has contributed mightily to China's hypersonics program. Uh, We also uncovered individuals who are now supporting Uh, deep-earth-penetrating warhead uh, development programs in China, and stealth submarines.
2: Wow. There's a lot there. And some of those are among, uh, I feel like, the most emerging and advanced and kind of going to be game-changing in the future technologies. So that sort of suggests then that some of those alum were informing China's making of that, right? Yeah.
0: I think so, and, and I think there's uh, sufficient evidence to, to hit that home as well. I mean, one example we provided in, in the study was um, a visiting uh, you know, postdoctorate doctorate uh, student who was working for an individual uh, on deep earth penetrating warheads uh, research. So this, this individual was at Los Alamos for I think two years, but uh, immediately upon returning to China, he then began to file patents. Right. And so that to us was a a pretty good indicator that much of the work he was doing in collaboration with um, uh, his team at Los Alamos was then making its way uh, to China where they were patenting it for military use.
2: And all of this is sort of happening against a bigger backdrop that I really wanted to talk to you about Strider's work in the context of Um, I saw recently U.S. and other leaders um, of the Five Eyes Military Alliance had warned on 60 Minutes. They said one of the things, quote, technology secrets that are about to change the world in AI, biology and computing are falling into the wrong hands, stolen in a global espionage campaign by China. So what are sort of the broader implications that Strider and and your colleagues are seeing that go with that warning um because it seems like that's sort of part of right where you guys sit and what you're watching right
0: yeah I think I think we're we have a unique vantage point for sure um you know our customers span the global fortune 500 uh, includes more than half of the fortune 50 so I think we have a we have a pretty good insight into what's going on um within within these strategic and emerging technology domains and you know look I think um, as you know, was said by uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray and others, this is not necessarily new. Uh, China has been targeting and stealing IP for, for quite some time. Uh, but I think I think it's fundamentally changed from a cost-benefit analysis. Um, the impact it's having on companies today is different than it was 10, 15 years ago. China is rapidly innovating uh, IP that it has stolen to, in essence, erode Uh, U.S. policy tools like export controls, uh, for example, or sanctions. And, you know, I think another really important point to make home for uh, those listening in here is, you know, it's easy to look at this as like one-off instances of theft, right? A technology here is stolen, a technology there. But let's look at the bigger context here. China, Chinese leaders view this as an opportunity for them to uh, leapfrog the United States and the West more broadly. So they fundamentally view this next technological wave and revolution as their opportunity to become a global superpower. Um, That's the part here that I think is is really the take-home point, because that is what underpins their resourcing of this operation globally. And it truly is an operation. Uh, So what we're seeing is more brazen attempts in the last two years to recruit talent uh, from leading companies. Uh, Some of those examples, I think, are outrageous uh, when you really drill into them. Uh, But we're also seeing them pivot a little bit. So with increasing export controls and sanctions here in the U.S., uh, we're seeing them increase their activity in places like South Korea uh, and Japan. Right. And so I think what we can all kind of glean is uh, they have a global perspective and our uh, policy tools only allow us to create barriers here in the United States, we, we truly need a a, a, uh, a program that counteracts this effort uh, that's international in nature and and is collaborated and coordinated with allies and friends. And you know, Brandy, I'll add one more thing here. You know, the key the key takeaway as we look at it is industry is the battle space for 21st century great power competition. And I think you know the 60 Minutes interview really hits home the fact that. Uh, the government is constrained in what it can do in a proactive manner. Uh, law enforcement often gets involved once an incident has already occurred. Right. So I think the message here is that corporate leaders need to take that responsibility on themselves and move quickly to protect the long term interests of their of their organizations.
2: It's really interesting on um, sort of what you were mentioning about uh, as sanctions and as mechanisms from the U.S. uh, get stronger, China is kind of turning elsewhere, looking at South Korea and those ways. Does that how does that impact sort of the data and the technologies that Strider uses? Does that does that sort of shift over the last two years mean that you guys have to expand essentially where you're looking and detecting um, does it have? How are you thinking about that?
0: Yeah, no, it certainly does. So, um, would that increase activity in places like Japan, South Korea? Um, you know, where we already have uh, operations in those respective countries, um, we're expanding that collection uh, as we speak uh, to be, be in a position to better service and, and deliver capabilities to um, the organizations we're, we're uh, serving there.
2: And. How also does this kind of um show anything that it would be maybe connected to China's just at the same time rapid military building up? I mean, you had mentioned the warheads and hypersonics and such. Um, are there very clear sort of things that align with what we're seeing with the buildup as well?
0: yeah, I, look, i think I think they're part and parcel. You know, so a lot of the emphasis on the military buildup side comes back to like physical infrastructure, ships, planes, uh, ports, things like that, right? So th- there's oftentimes this, this focus on that piece of it. But, um, you know, as we drill into commentary and policy documents and analyses coming out of um, Chinese leadership, you know, they're equally focused on acquiring the requisite talent and material to sustain not only the military, but the economy. During, um, during a conflict, right? And so when you drill into some of their strategic thinking, it's has much more to do with how do we get the material, tech, and know-how we need in place so that uh, if and when we need to wage a protracted battle, we can sustain that over time. So that's where you're seeing a ton of emphasis on the semiconductor industry, right? Which is a key input in um, weapons system platforms, ships, planes, et cetera um they need to they want to and need to have a domestic self-sustaining capability uh, in their minds right to to enable that and that's that's where i were we're seeing this emphasis particularly in the semiconductor industry to recruit talent and uh, steal ip so mm-hmm. the talent piece is a big part of that i mean you can acquire a blueprint but if somebody doesn't know how to follow the steps how to put that recipe together uh, they're not going to get the same output And that's been true for a variety of technologies. I mean, jet engines is a a great example. China has been actively trying to develop its own domestic jet engine capability for decades. Um, I think they've stolen most every single corporate jet engine blueprint you can think of. Um, They still have not been able to do that. I have seen some indicators um, in Chinese language sources that suggest they might've had a breakthrough recently. My hunch is that came likely from a Russian source. Um, than anything from from the West. But uh, I think that's a good example to highlight here, the, the role that talent plays uh, in, in their approach.
2: Fascinating. And one more on China. This just occurred to me, but as a reporter, um, I've heard a bit uh, over the last few years of this sort of um, strategy that China is following that's like, comes with data, like get it now, access it now, save it later, and when you can run it on these capabilities that don't even exist yet, when they do exist, you'll be able to um, unleash it. Is that also something that Strider is following, like where where the data can be collected in that way from China?
0: Yeah, intimately. I mean, China is the only country in the world, Brandy, who has actually added data uh, to its list of factors of production. So factors of production are traditionally like land, labor, capital. Um, they've ad- they added data to that to that list as well. So if you think about like the twenty the foundations of twenty first century technology, data is a fuel. it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a massive asset. And so uh, they are beginning to implement laws that restrict the flow of data uh, in you know within the country and externally. Uh, we're seeing the buildup of massive data centers uh, all over China to store that information. Uh, to your point, if it's encrypted, you know they hope to find ways to decrypt it in the future and then leverage it. Um, but more importantly, I think what we're going to start to see is uh, China treating data just like capital flows, right? Like there's going to need to be checks on uh, what's coming in and what's going out. So I think in many levels, that's that's concerning. It's um, it it begins to increase their ability to control uh, information, uh, restrict access to foreign. Uh, you know, investors or or government leaders who are trying to understand what's going on. So in many respects, I think it's it's a obviously a net negative uh to the situation, but hits home the reality and the impact that data is having in the world today.
2: Absolutely. And something else I wanted to um chat on that you just mentioned is it it also does at the same time expand beyond um beyond China. And it just thinking about um like the current and emerging conflicts that we see right now are there any trends associated with um with the Ukraine Russia war or now the Israel Hamas conflicts that strider is also following or being asked to follow
0: so we're we're looking at these situations um in i think in a uh, collective right they they are certainly um uh there, there are certainly issues at play that crosscut all of these conflicts underway. Uh, the role of China in the Ukraine-Russia conflict and now Israel-Hamas, uh, I think is an interesting one. There, there's differing views uh, in terms of like their role and what they're doing and what what they're contributing. Um, but when, when we look at the data, what we see is um, a China that's very much focused on leveraging these occurrences to maximize their diplomatic, uh, economic and military positions. So, uh, you know, without without kind of getting into too much specificity, I, I think uh, the reaction that they're having uh, in both of these instances on the diplomatic front is indicative of their involvement um, and their, their role in, uh, I think, uh, coordinating uh, some of these activities.
2: And from sort of um, your perch at Strider broadly, how... How does the firm really sort of measure the impacts of its work and its findings like these that we're talking about?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, look, as a startup, I mean, we measure ourselves um, not dissimilarly to other startups, right, in terms of like how we're growing, uh, the impact that we're having. But more importantly, you know, one of the ways that uh, I assess it is what are we what are we contributing to our customers that's transforming their security operations and more importantly, moving them from a proactive posture from a reactive position. So if, if you really think about security operations um, and even what you know, Christopher Ray and the Five Eye um, leader said on 60 Minutes, we're inherently reacting, right? I mean, China's targeting companies and, and then the FBI gets involved when there's theft. Um, there is a lot of work that can be done in advance of an incident occurring. That is where we're really measuring our impact, right? What is the kind of data that we're pulling Is it correlating with insider activity that was previously unknown? Is it blocking attempts to recruit or solicit information from organizations and their talent? Are we helping customers illuminate where in their supply chain uh, there are nation states that are, um, you know, not good for their business operations, to put it bluntly, right? Like that is where we're illuminating, I think, a a whole world that folks knew was there uh, but didn't really know how to grasp. And so... You know, I, I think there was, a, as we've gone and built out this business over the last five years, what I can say is, A, companies do care about the nation states that are targeting them and their people. They want to develop programs and policies that protect their talent and their IP, because it's not just about their commercial value, but it's about the long-term uh, success of their of their organizations, right? And I think that's really where we measure our success. Are we helping to protect the free world? and the innovations that we're developing, I think the two go hand in hand.
2: Thank you so much for that. And that get, got me to something else I wanted to uh, discuss with you. I I had only seen a little bit, but can you talk about what Strider's inception was? Like, did you and um, your brother, who I believe leads this company um, with you and, and another colleague, did you guys have like an aha moment? What, what are Strider's roots?
0: Yeah, so... Uh... So the origin story of Strider is, I think, uh, it's, it's it's a fascinating one. I mean, so I was working in D.C. at the time, uh, supporting a number of U.S. government uh, projects um, that included uh, the U.S. Trade Reps 301 investigation in 2017. Uh, it also included doing some work with the Department of Defense to map out supply chains, right, and under, better understand where adversaries existed within uh, critical technology uh, domains. Uh, at that time, too, my twin brother, Eric, was in the Middle East um, and working for the Oman Sovereign Wealth Fund, where he was leading out tech investment. Uh, and what we what we realized was me- much of the activity that I was seeing within that, uh, that research pro- program was actually materializing in his world in the Middle East. And so that really was an aha moment for us to see that okay, what China and Russia and other countries are doing is global in nature. They're focused on uh, corporations. They're focused on technologies. uh, And they're mobilizing their government apparatuses to engage in those domains. So it created a real unique asymmetry because investors and companies on the other side of that table were very much viewing these as, as commercial transactions, right? And I think that was the moment where we realized, look, if this is happening in Oman, happening everywhere and so therefore it must be a system Mm -hmm. and so we went about to begin mapping that system how does it operate how can how does it materialize in the real world what are the indicators that we can pick up in open source that tell us there's an activity going on here that's being directed or coordinated by russia iran china and so as we began to build that out uh, and test it in the market we found that the data that we had the methodology we we implemented and the way it was delivered to our customers was yielding some very high impact results. And, you know, frankly, after after doing this for over a decade manually, what we also um, were humbled by was the true scope and scale of, uh, of this activity and the cost it was having on corporations and research institutions around the world. So that's been, um, on one hand, a humbling experience. On the other, it's extremely motivating to be in a position to... Uh, actively help push back on this and protect organizations from from this uh, from this threat.
2: Absolutely. And is there anything that you guys are working on now um, or in the near term uh, that we could look forward to that you could share?
0: Yeah. So um, a couple of things. We've spent quite a bit of time looking at the Arctic and uh, the role that that countries like China and Russia are are increasingly playing there. So I would expect some some other. Uh, data and reporting to come out on that here in the near future. Um, The other thing that we're doing is looking for more ways to engage um, in other areas to support this discussion. So we're rolling out a new initiative called Strider Impact. This is an opportunity for us to uh, create a bridge and collaborate with think tanks, research institutions, universities, who are working on uh, exploring how China, Russia, other nation states are competing in the twenty-first century. So we've uh, we've developed initial relationships here in Utah with Utah State University um, and the Center for Anticipatory Intelligence. We're also working with Florida International University uh, as they map out uh, Chinese activities in Latin America. And so those are two just immediate uh, ways that we're we're looking to give back. Right, use our data. It's at no cost to these organizations. We plug into their systems and and help them really like turbocharge those research efforts uh, with some pretty unique data assets. So we're excited about it. We're looking for more folks to engage um, and really just continue to build out this community.
2: Nice. Well, certainly um, keep me informed both on both of those uh, efforts going forward. Um, I'm excited to see the work that you do there. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast with us today, uh, and we'll be in touch soon, okay?
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Brandy.
1: You can learn more about protecting the nation's innovation at DefenseScoop.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help with the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.